the last um, last week we spoke about being kadosh for Hashem. Vihiyisem kedoshim leilokechem. You shall be holy for Hashem. And um, we talked about this kedusha as being achieved. The the aspect that we spoke about, aside from the awesomeness of thinking that that. You know, on the one hand, that's demanded of us. On the other hand, that means that that can be demanded of us. So that's a very exciting idea, right, that no matter where we're holding. The Chovetz Chaim said it doesn't matter where someone's holding. The Torah can tell this to somebody right after saying, So you you could be grappling with being drawn after your eyes and after your heart, and the Torah still considers you a person to whom it can say, Remember and do the mitzvot, and you'll be holy to Hashem. And that this is uh, this is within within the realm of what we might be able to do. And that this kedusha is achieved. Kedusha in the past we've spoken about as being an element of restraint, or rather not an element of restraint, but an outcome of restraint. That wherever you find a geder arayos, for example, a fence or a something you've put in place to prevent you getting close to immorality, that's where you find Kedusha, Chazal say. So this holding ourselves back, restraining ourselves, perhaps even a bit more than what is required, because we realize for ourselves we need it. Okay, it's not what they'd call frumkite for the sake of being frum, but rather holding ourselves back because we can tell that that's what we personally need. It's not just, well, do I have to do it? But this is what is appropriate to do. And that in that space, this is where we find Kedusha, the small action that's taken that says, no, this is what's really important to me. Um, even when we feel we can't take any action, when we feel helpless, there's the, the initiation of the Kedusha to Hashem that comes from saying, I will clear the room of everybody else. I may not know how to draw close to Hashem, but I can make sure that I'm not flirting <laughs> with any other ideas because I'm looking for comfort, I'm looking for love, I'm looking for closeness, spiritual, I'm looking for spiritual inspiration. I don't need to go, even if I'm not feeling it yet from God. But the fact that I'm not looking into Zen and the fact that I'm not you know, uh, watching things I shouldn't watch in order to distract myself, and I'm not eating things or doing things that give me a five-minute boost temporarily, but I'm saying, no, I'm holding myself and waiting for you, Hashem. This is vehis kadashta, making ourselves holy, and in this way we make ourselves a fitting place for the, for the Torah and for the Shechina to be. And we connected this to some of the ideas of Tisha B'Av, the idea of the fire within us that is a result of Yira Shamayim, the fear of betraying God, um, that this, this is what will build the Beis HaMikdash when put together in its entirety.
the, pos- the next Pasuk continues, this last Pasuk, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, I am Hashem your God, Asher Hotzei Eretz Mitzrayim, who has taken you out of the land of Egypt, Lihios Lochem Lelo Kim, in order to be your Lord, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, I am Hashem your Lord. There are a lot of different questions here. The most noticeable one is that it says, Ani Hashem Elokeichem twice. I am Hashem your Lord, who took you out of Mitzrayim to be your God, I am Hashem your Lord. So it's bracketed. So hopefully that will be the topic that we get to today. But there is a transition from You shall be holy to your Lord. I am Hashem, your Lord. That's me. Okay. Now, I mentioned last time that I had looked up the places where the Torah says you shall be holy. There are a few other ones that are similar to this. I found five that have this exact phrase. V'yisem Kedoshim. Here's one in Vayikra. Well, diff- these are different parts of Vayikra. I think they're probably all in Vayikra. The only one that's not in Vayikra is this verse, <laughs> which is Bamidbar. Okay. Ki ani Hashem Elokeichem, for I am Hashem your Lord. V'his kadishtem, and you shall make yourselves holy. V'yisem Kedoshim, and you will be holy. Ki kadosh ani, because I am holy. V'lo sitamu esnafshoseichem b'chol hasheretz haromeitz al haaretz. And you shall not contaminate your soul by eating uh, creepy crawly things that creepy crawly on the ground. The next verse, this is not, oh, this is actually the next verse in order, but not necessarily. For I am Hashem, ki ani Hashem hamala eschem eretz mitzrayim lios lochem lelokim. For I am Hashem who took you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your Lord. V'yisem kedoshim, and you shall be holy, ki kadosh ani, for I am holy. You can hear there's a theme here, right? This is not the only place in Torah that mentions this concept. Later in Vayikra, v'yiskadishtem, you shall make yourselves holy, v'yisem kedoshim, and you will be holy, ki ani Hashem lokechem, for I am Hashem your Lord. Here's another one. V'yisem li kedoshim, you shall be for me holy ones, or uh, dedicated to me, or reserved for me, ki kadosh ani Hashem, for, because, or for, I am... Holy, I am God. And I separated you from the other nations to be for me. And then we have this one. So it's not surprising that the next words are because that actually fits the pattern more when you know these other verses. Okay, so it's just, I just wanted to take a couple minutes to ask the question... So what's the deal? Why, why are these always intertwined? It's already lofty and exciting concept that Hashem is saying, you should be holy to me. But why is it always attached to Hashem saying, because I'm holy, because I am Hashem? Meaning there's, there's, it's, it's always tied to Hashem saying, I am Hashem, this word ani, Hashem identifying himself in some way always gets tied to the command to be holy. So we have someone at the door. Thank you, Bar. So, I'll just pause for a second here while we get something. <laughs> so, yeah. First of all, what we see is a um, I call it like a commingling of identities that's happening here. There's an identity of us of being. It's a being, vihisem, you will be. It's an existence, you'll be holy. But that is intertwined with 
Hashem telling us something to identify him. Okay. Um, and, and in fact, the reason I had to take this, these few sources out from that pile, because that's the transition to Shemona Esrei. We're in the last Pasuk of Shema. And so what's going to start to happen is Shema, Shema was a certain phase, but within any phase or any level, there's a process that's happening. And we've seen that every time mm-hmm. we, we study a section in davening. Shema is Shema, and there's a lead-in to get to Shema, and then there's the Avoda of Shema. But by the time we're done with the Avoda of Shema, we should find ourselves, on the one hand, having done that Avoda, and on the other hand, in some way, more poised to be adjacent to entering the next space, the next level in the Beis Amikdash. And that's what happens here, because if we look at our table, which I didn't print any out here, Kriya Shema is Kabbalah's Omalchus Shemaim, accepting the yoke of heaven, declaring that Hashem is the king. But that stems from what Rav Schwab called the crowning glory of mankind. In other words, our free will. The fact that we have free will and that we can choose betu- to choose Hashem because there is the, always the choice of going against him, because we have that choice, that's what's meaningful about it. In other words... It depends upon the fact that I experience myself as a separate entity from God. Even though really Hashem is the source of all life, everything, including my material body and my soul, is an output or an expression of his shefa of bracha into the world and life. I experience myself by the fact that I have free will. I experience myself as an independent creature. And that it, we rely on that. That is the crowning glory of being a person. That is what brings us to the level of malachim. In other words, someone who can be perfectly performing God's will. We do that through our free will. But in Shemona Esrei, we're reaching for another level, even if it's only briefly. And that's, I mean, it's the level we can get to. It's not in this world. And it's, it's in, within the supernatural plane. And this is the world where we are recognizing not I and him, but it is only him. Everything is only him. That's the world of Atzilus. That's the world of Hashem's Ratzon being expressed into creation. That's only his Ratzon. There's nobody else there. So somewhere here we start, in this last Pasuk of Shema, we start to see that the end goal where we've gotten to through the process of Shema is somewhere that starts to get us blur the line into Shemona Esrei so to speak. This is where we, this is our last step, but it's also the first step into Shemona Esri. Okay, so that's exactly what happens here. All right, so Rav Schwab says, and I, I want to read this little piece from Rav Schwab first, and then the way Rav Munk puts it, which takes it another step. The Torah tells us that it is incumbent upon a person to continually elevate himself. It's not a static space. You will be holy. You achieved it. Great. You made it. Now you can stop working. The Torah is telling us that this is all the time. This whole thing is a process all the time. You have your tzitzis. You look at them. You remember the mitzvahs. You're avoiding the wrong things. And through this, you will do the mitzvahs and become holy. 
constantly on an ongoing basis. So even though a person's body stops growing at some point because it's finite, and even though a person's intellectual ability and your, and your brain and your decision-making capacity continues for a few more years after that, not a lot of them, but I think that like your frontal lobes don't function fully till you're like 24, which is <laughs> why people make better decisions at some point after they're 20 than before they're 20. But when it comes to our ethical development and our choices, we're supposed to continue developing. That's, that's our whole lives. There's no point where we say, well, that has stopped developing. It's downhill from therein. No. As people, we're supposed to continue developing our whole lives, which, again, gives you a sense that that, that use of the seichel, of the mind, of the choice to do the mitzvos, this borders on and is influenced by the infinite. It's not down at the level. The physical, remember the first two levels were in the area of the natural. And the top two levels are in the zone of the supernatural. The mind is the third, so it's the first of the zones of the supernatural. And so there's a degree of constant growth that happens there that isn't stopped by the physical environment. That as long as Hashem gives one life, a person must keep elevating himself to come closer to him. We are to separate ourselves from what we were before because Kedoshim... Being holy, remember, is always an outcome of precious, of being able to separate oneself from something, to hold back. So we have to separate ourselves from what we used to be and become something more. Not to say, well, that's how I was, that's how I always was, I can't be any different. We can do more. And he says, this is, when we think of the latter, which we talked about so many years ago, <laughs> that all of this davening and the Makam HaMikdash started with Yaakov having his dream, his, his prophetic dream, in the place where the Beis HaMikdash would be built. And he sees a Sulam Mutzav Artza, a ladder whose feet are standing on the ground, and the head of the ladder, the top of it, reaches to the heavens. And one way of understanding it, well, let's, this, is the pro, this is the prayer. It's supposed to take us from the ground all the way up to the heavens. And Yaakov even sees himself as if his feet are the ground and his head reaches the heavens. Remember, I don't know, one year in Parsha, I remember we learned that approach. In other words, that the person himself is supposed to see that he can reach up to the heavens. Now, we can't reach the level of God, but we can reach Hashamayma to the direction of heaven. And this is the constant process that Yaakov saw in his dream, the malachim coming and going, this constant movement up toward heaven. Here's how Rabbi Munk puts it in the world of prayer. Holiness is the real motivating force, guiding our steps toward the ultimate goal. And only by a persistent striving for holiness does life ascend to a higher level of existence. Through it alone can man, the finite being, become the image of God, the infinite. You see here how he took <coughs> the connection, excuse me. V'yisam kedoshim le'elokeichem, ani Hashem elokeichem. We become adjacent. So it's through the striving for holiness that man becomes the image of God, but the Hashem is infinite. There need be no other reason for the Jew to pursue this ideal of becoming holy 
than Ani Hashem Elokechem, than the very existence and will of God. Just the fact that Hashem exists and just the fact that this is his will is enough for us to strive for it and become close to it. I think that answers the question of why. In every case where the Torah says, V'yisem Kedoshim, it is attached to Hashem saying, Ani Hashem Elokechem, Ki Kadosh Ani Hashem Elokechem. In every case. Now we're really going to move all the way into the next pasuk. Ani Hashem Elokechem, I am Hashem your Lord, Asher Hosei Me'eretz Mitzrayim, who took you out of the land of Egypt, Lios Lachem Le'elokim, to be for you as, a, as Lord. Ani Hashem Elokechem, I am Hashem your Lord. There are two questions here I want to ask, and I, the answers turn out to be somewhat intertwined. So I'll just ask both questions up front. The first question, which I mentioned before, is why does it say Ani Hashem Elokechem twice? It's bracketed, but it's bracketed in a very short space. The second question is, it's sort of the opposite of what we had started. When we began learning this paragraph of Ayom Hashem Moshe Lemor, we talked about the question of all the parts, if we're trying to fulfill, we're trying to fulfill a mitzvah. The mitzvah is to say, to relate and remember Yetzias Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt, every day, twice a day. And we do that here in Shema. And we talked about why should it be connected to Shema. And we asked the question, why should it be the paragraph about tzitzis? Because really, the book of Shmos is full of descriptions of leaving Egypt. Why do you choose the section about tzitzis just because it mentions Egypt? That was the question we discussed then. But now I have a different question. If we're learning about tzitzis in this section of the Torah, why does Hashem bring in Yitzhak Mitzrayim? This is sort of the opposite question, right? We were looking at it from a different perspective. But now, just coming at it as a whole Parsha that we've looked at, we're talking about tzitzis. Okay, you should be holy. Okay. You should be holy because Hashem is holy. Okay, that's good too. But what does Yitzhak Mitzrayim have to do with it? Why, why, what's the connection between that and the fact that Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim? Okay. So. I want to... What I, want to do, and this is kind of our main topic for today, is to look at the Rashi's. The Rashi's are really a little bit um, surprising in some ways. And I thought first I would read through this series of Rashi's and then go back and start tackling the different sections because through doing this we start to answer the questions. Okay. Ani Hashem Elokeichem. Ani Hashem, I am God. And the name of Hashem here is spelled Yud, He, Vav, and He. So it's the name of God, which we know is associated with, it means Hashem was, is, and always will be. He is infinite, that Hashem is the creator of the universe uh, and the constant creator of the universe, that Hashem is creator with love, with chesed, with rachamim. I am God, Rashi says, he explains, Ne'eman l'shalem sachar. What does it mean that Hashem is identifying that He is Yud Hey Vav and Hey? Ne'eman, He is faithful. You can trust Him. L'shalem sachar to repay, uh, not to repay, to pay a reward. There's almost an identical Rashi in Va'era. We did a shear on it this year, mm-hmm. right? At the end, the, it was um, actually the end of Va'era and the beginning. No, the end of Shmos, beginning of the era. 
where Hashem tells Moshe, I did not identify myself by this name, yud heh vav and hey to the, to the Avos, but, but I'm telling you that I am Hashem, I am faithful to pay a reward. I am Hashem Elokechem, your Lord. That's based on the root of Elokim Shalachem, your Elokim, which is judgment. Ne'eman lihipara. I am also faithful to punish, or to, it would be really to demand payment. To take, demand payment doesn't work because that's a demand. Lipara is to get, pay, <laughs> to get paid. Mm-hmm. When someone does something wrong, lipara is, they have, is paying the penalty. Okay? Asher hotseisi eschem. Now again, you say, well, okay. This is helpful, this Rashi, but I still don't understand why this is the point. What did that have to do with here? I just want to point out, like these Rashis are, are not, it's often the case with Rashi is that you, you have to struggle to understand, not to struggle, you have to work on what is he trying to tell me? Because Rashi's answering a question here, but what did he answer and in what way did he answer it? Asher hotseisi eschem. I am God who I took you out. Alminas came. It is for this reason, Podisi Eschem, that I redeemed you. Shetekablu Alechem Gzerosai, that you should accept upon yourself my decrees. I am Hashem, I am Hashem your Lord. I am Hashem who pays, who rewards people for doing mitzvot. I am Hashem who punishes and demands repayment from those who do Averos. And I took you out of Egypt in order that you should accept my decrees. Ani Hashem Elokeichem. And then it says again, I am Hashem your God. Lama Neamar, why does it say yet again, Yomru Yisrael, so that the Jewish people should not say, Mipnei Ma, Amar Hamakom Lo, Hashem says, perhaps you will think, okay, Hashem rewards us for doing what's good. This is very apt for tzitzis. Well, if I wear tzitzis, it's a mitzvah. But if I don't, so I won't get the reward. Okay? Hashem doesn't want us to think that in general. Not only about tzitzis. Tzitzis is just a great example of it because it's quote-unquote optional, right? But the idea that a person will say, Hashem said I should do this thing or I shouldn't do this thing. If I do what he says, he'll reward me. You know what? I won't do it this time. I won't get rewarded this time. No problem. No. The Torah is coming to make sure we don't think that way. It's against your will I'm your king. In other words, I'm your king anyway. The gezeros that I make, that were said, I, re- I redeemed you in order that you should accept my decrees, my decrees are there anyway. My will will be fulfilled anyway. But there's something here that Hashem wants, which is that we should tekablu aleichem, you should accept it on yourselves, the gezeros. There's a difference there. Right? This is very much what we talked about when we began talking about this whole parsha. This idea that there is a specific avoda Hashem wants us to accept. This is Kabbalah's Malchus Shemaim and Kabbalah's Ol Mitzvos. This is the avoda of Shema. Right? Not enough that Hashem is our king, 
He wants us to accept him as king. That's why Hashem says, I will, okay, I will rule, I will rule over you if necessary with a strong hand. Davar okay. Acher, another explanation. Lama Nemar Yetzias Mitzrayim. Why does it say here about going out of Egypt? Anihu, I am. Okay. Why does it say over here? Why does it mention Yetzias Mitzrayim? And what does that have to do with I am Hashem your God? Hashem is saying, I am God, and you know how you can tell the quality that I wish to remind you of about me? That I'm the Hashem who took you out of Mitzrayim. What's the fact that he took us out of Mitzrayim? I am the God who was able to make the fine distinction, it's like to diagnose, to be able to tell the difference in Egypt between the drop of a Bechor and the drop which is not a Bechor. In other words, which little, it's an awkward thing to say, which sperm is a Bechor and which isn't? Which is a firstborn child and which one isn't? Anihu, I could tell even that. Because we know that in Makas Bechoros, in the plague of the firstborn children in Mitzrayim, not only children, the firstborn sons in Egypt, Whoever was a firstborn, whether from the father or from the mother, died. Mm-hmm. So there were, and there were certain places, we'll bring another case here, a different, a different source, places where there were many children in one family who died. Because, yeah, they all had the same mother, only one was the oldest from the mother. But there were quite a few, every single one of her other children was the firstborn to their father. So, because it was a very promiscuous society. I could tell the difference. That God, the God who's able to tell the difference between this little drop and that little drop, I am the one who's going to be distinguishing. I'm the one, I'm the one who's going to say, you see all those people wearing tzitzis with the blue techela string? I can tell the difference between this string, which is really dyed with techeles, and this other string, which is dyed with counterfeit techeles, from a grass, from a different dye. This is a very strange Rashi. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that's why I said, like, we'll just read the Rashis first, and then we'll talk about these different topics. Okay, Uh, it's not just Rashi, he's quoting a Gemara in Baba Messiah. Okay, (laughs) not just Rashi. But, But you still have to ask why Rashi thought this was helping us. Okay. Now, another explanation from the teachings of Rabbi Moshe Hadarshan, Hetakti, I copy down, I, I, I copy here his, his explanation. It's a question in Kulin. The question is, Right before this bit about Sitsis, the previous paragraph is about the man who gathered wood on Shabbos. Mm-hmm. And then had they, and they didn't know what to do, and then they finally discovered that they were supposed to punish him. It was vile, it was um, liable for the death penalty. And right from there we go into Sitsis. Okay. And the Gemara asks. 
Why is the section about the man who gathered the wood on Shabbos next to the section about not doing Avodah Zarah? Which, as far as I can tell, I did not research this so, so carefully, I believe that what it's referring to is the fact that over here, the Torah says in this paragraph, where it sits is, and look at them and remember Hashem, Lo sasu and Chazal said, one of those is talking about um, immorality, and the other one is talking about Avodah Zarah. One is heresy. So why is the Makoshis Eishim put over there? To tell you, This tells you that one who violates the Shabbos, who profanes the Shabbos, it's as if he worshipped idols. What's the comparison? Shabbos is equal in weight in some way, or it comprises within itself all of the other mitzvos, and this and also not worship and worshiping Avodah Zarah, avoiding Avodah Zarah, believing only in God, also includes within it all of the mitzvos. And he brings a, a verse from Nehemiah, which supports that. Ve'af parsha tzitzis, also the parsha of tzitzis, right? Because you see the string of the tzitzis and you'll do all the mitzvos. You'll remember all the mitzvos. So the tzitzis themselves, even though they seem to be a relatively small mitzvah, at least from the point of view of effort and expense, relatively small, like, you know, it's not fair for me to comment, since I'm not high in tzitzis, how difficult it might or might not be to wear them, but it appears to be relatively small on the scale of mitzvahs. If we imagine somebody who never kept mitzvahs, kept mitzvahs before, now they're going to come in and they're going to say, okay, you're going to keep Shabbos, and you're going to daven three times a day, and you're going to wear tzitzis, seems like tzitzis, you know, get it on in the morning and you're done. Like, <laughs> pretty straightforward, but it, it encompasses within it all the other mitzvahs. That's why these are all put one after the other. They're put next to each other. Why? Because it is also in some way equal to all the other mitzvos, as it says, and you shall do all the mitzvos. Next, Divrei Hamascha, right? Rashi, Rashi put this is technically in the same verse. Rashi says the next words he's commenting on. Al kanfei vigdehem on the corners of your garments. And this is where you say, wait, what? Because that was a few verses ago. Mm -hmm. But over here, Rashi is going to teach us something about Alkanfe Vigdehem that was more important that he should say it over here than that he should say it in the correct place a few verses, four verses ago. Alkanfe Vigdehem, on the corners of your garments, Keneged, this corresponds to the verse in Shemos, the Esau Eschem Alkanfe Nesharim. I shall lift you up upon the wings of eagles. We all know that verse one way or another. We've heard it, right? That God will carry us back to the land of Israel. This is a description of the final redemption. I shall lift you upon the wings of eagles. Al arba kanfos, because wings kanfos. And the Torah said, al kanfe vigdehem, on the corners of your garments, but that literally means on the wings of your garments. Why on the wings of your garments? To correspond to the verse, I will raise you on the wings of eagles. Al arba kanfos, on four corners, four wings of the garment. Velo shalosh, velo chamesh. Not on a garment that has three wings, not on a garment that has five. 
because you might have thought five includes four. Meaning once you have more than four, that also has five. Not sure exactly what your garment would be an interesting sort of scalloped garment to <laughs> try and get five corners off, but let's say you did it, right? You overlap two fours, now you've got eight or something. Not three, not five. Why? Because it corresponds, the four corners of the garment is to remind you, I shall lift you on eagle's wings, and it corresponds to the four languages of redemption that the Torah said in Mitzrayim, in Shmos Paragvav, Vehotsesi, I will bring you out. Vehitsalti, I will redeem you. I will free you. Vegoalti, I will save you. Velokachti, I will bring you. How do we get here? This is great. It's also not what you usually hear from mm-hmm. Rashi. Right, little... This is Pshat, and we need to hear it over here. Pesil Techeles. He's got another one. He's going to say up his sleeve, but that doesn't work for Tzitzis. Okay, so here it was Alkanfei Vigdehem, and now we're jumping to Pesil Techeles. Hakanaf, the wing, Pesil Techeles, a strand of sky blue. Pesil Techeles, a strand of blue. Why is it called a strand of blue? Techeles is a kind of light, a sky blue. Al shame shiku bechoros, because of the decimation of the firstborn in Egypt. Targum shel shiku, I don't know how you pronounce this word, tichla. I'd have to, I don't know how you pronounce it. I'd have to find a Rashi that was minukad. Okay, the Aramaic word for decimation or bereavement is tichla, which I imagine is similar to the Hebrew word lechalos, which we've mentioned, which is like to completely destroy. Okay? But it's the word techeles. In other words, a strand of blue is a strand of decimation of the firstborn. Umichtam haya balayla v'chein seva ha-techeles dome la-rakia ha-mashchir erev. The color of blue, this is not what we've heard before. The color of sky blue of Techeles is similar to the heavens. Okay, we knew that. As they get dark towards evening. Now that's very counterintuitive, especially since you only wear tzitzis in the daytime, so you can see them, right? We learned that out from the fact that you need to see them. And the eight strings that form it says this. You take four strings and fold them over so you've got eight strands. Keneged correspond to Shmone Yomim, the eight days. Sheshow Yisrael, Shira Al Hayam. The strand of blue reminds you of Makas Bechoros, <laughs> which. Hashem was able to distinguish drop from drop who's a Bechor. And it's eight strands that correspond to the eight days lag between when the Jewish people were freed in Egypt until the time that they sang the Shira, the song, the prophetic song on the sea. So 
It's really a very, very unusual set of Rashis. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's a very unusual set of Rashis. I really hope I can find I told you I'm missing some notes. I really hope they show up. The concept of the reminding you of crossing the sea, right? Yes, see, right, because the trailers remind you of, yeah. <laughs> but I really, really am missing notes. They must be here. Handwritten notes? Or They'll be handwritten notes, yeah. Handwritten notes on the Rashi. Uh, Notes shouldn't really be able to go that far. These are they. There's quite a lot to lose. It wasn't. <laughs> okay. Let's see, I'm stealing from one topic to another. The Rashi's in order. Okay. Rashi. He started by saying, Ani Hashem. This is a reference to the to the quality, the interaction of Hashem with the world of Ne'eman L'Shalem Schar. Faithful to pay. And Elokechem, I am Hashem, your Lord. Ne'eman Lehipara. Faithful, you can count on it, that he will demand payment. First of all, here is Rav Schwab's paraphrase of this. The use of the four-lettered name, Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, is always a reference to the Midas HaRachamim. And Rashi, quoting the Sifri, says that Ani Hashem here means Ne'aman L'Shalem Sachar, which paraphrased means, you can rely on me to reward you for every good thought that you have, for every evil thought that you suppress, for every mitzvah that you do, for every kind deed that you perform, and for every unkind deed or word that you refrain from doing. That's what it means, that Hashem is faithful to pay. That you can count on him for the tiniest, every single detail. He is paying attention, and he is interacting with us and noting what we do. Every single thing we do matters. And that's ne'eman. Ne'eman means you can totally trust him. It's the same root as the word emuna. God is ne'eman means you can trust in him. Moshe is described by Hashem as ne'eman, as faithful, as trustworthy. When someone's trustworthy, you don't have to ask, you don't have to check, you know. The fact that we can trust in Hashem to reward us or punish us, why would that be trusting in him? That doesn't seem so nice. It seems a little scary. What it means is we're trusting that he is paying attention and that he actually cares. He looks and he watches and he cares what we do, which means we're never alone, which means that nothing, no matter how small, is wasted. And especially there are things we do that nobody knows that we've done them. And it's hard to feel that they matter. Or maybe we've taken very small steps, and so they don't look like they matter very much. But they're what we could do. Don't worry. 
V'yisam kedoshim le'lokechem, that's mostly going to be deep inside of you, maybe where no one can see. Holding yourself back from other things. It doesn't look like you've done anything. Hashem will reward you, even if it's for every evil thought you suppress. Everything you thought about doing wrong or saying that was hurtful and you held it back, that also gets rewarded. And Elokechem is a reference to Midas Hadin. You can also be assured I will punish you for your misdeeds. All right. And the Maharal reminds us Elohim is always Lashon of Midas Hadin. So I approached this with a question because of the Parsha she we had had. I said, that doesn't sound the same. Meaning, I understand that we always say Ani Hashem, and Hashem is referring to... Hashem is referring to... I mean, I understand. Whatever. I know this idea. I don't whether I understand it or not. It's referring to me. This Hirachamim and Elohim to me. That's Hadin. But... If I look at Rashi's commentary at the beginning of Shemos... Vayidaber Elohim el Moshe, Hashem the Lord, meaning Din, said to Moshe, spoke to him, Vayomer Elav, and said to him, Ani Hashem, I am Hashem of Rachamim. Like that was what we had the Parsha Shir on. And Rashi says, Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem. God said to Moshe, I am Hashem, I am God, Yudhei Vavantei. Ne'eman l'shalem sachar tov l'mishalchem l'fanai. I am Ne'eman, I am faithful to pay, to reward good to those who walk before me. Uh, hold on. Okay, and I didn't send you for nothing. I sent you in order to fulfill my promise to the early forefathers. Because the, then Hashem goes on in his message to say, I appeared to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as Kel Shokai, but my name of Yud, Hei, Vav, and Hei, I did not inform them of. Okay. We find in many places that the phrase, Ani Hashem, I am God, refers to Naaman Lipara. Also, it can mean I am, it means both. It means I'm faithful to to reward and faithful to punish. Kishahu Omer Eitzel Onesh, when it's said next to something that sounds like a punishment. Kingon, Bechilalta Hashem Elokecha Ani Hashem. For you have uh, profaned the name of Hashem your Lord, I am God. I am Hashem. Yudhei Vavanhei. Ukshahu Omer Eitzel Kiyom Mitzos, Kingon Ushmarta Mitzos, Ivasisimos Amani Hashem. Naman Litain Schar. So when it's used next to something wrong, it means I am faithful to punish. When it's used next to something right, I am faithful to reward. Haya he was, he is, he always will be, he is all-powerful, he is the source of all, and he is faithful to do it, even though it could take a long time to see the outcome in this world. Okay, but this leaves us with a little bit of a question, which is then, over here, okay, I guess you could say like Ani Hashem, because it's talking about Kedoshim, that that we're being holy, so that Ani Hashem is going to be interpreted as a positive, that Hashem will reward. But it's a little bit tricky because it's Ani Hashem Elokeichem. So now you do have the Midas Hadin over here. You have both. Mm -hmm. So then, 
Okay, you see what the difficult, it's a little bit difficult. Why they have to be split then into two names of God when really Ani Hashem could refer to either one. Okay. So I think that a different Rashi in Shemos also, Perak Vav, Pasuk Vav, which is the end of this passage. Okay, so Hashem says, I am Hashem, I appeared to your forefathers, to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as Kel Shakai, as a powerful Lord, uh, a protecting Lord, but the interaction of Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, they did not experience themselves. We talked about that because they received promises from God, but they didn't always see the fulfillment within their lifetimes. But that was okay with them because we said that the tzaddikim don't require seeing the fulfillment of the promise in order to think it's true. They know that the word of God is reality. That's the creation of reality. And therefore, the fact that God said it is really enough. The Gam Hakimosi as Brisi Itam, and I established a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land that they lived in, that they were dwelling in only as visitors. They're going to take ownership of it, right? They didn't see that reward. And also, I have heard the moans of the Jewish people who are in, it, in Egypt, that the Egyptians are enslaving them, and I remember my covenant. Therefore, tell the Jewish people, Lachain Amor Livnei Israel, Ani Hashem. I am God. I shall take you out of the burden of Egypt. Okay, this is I will free you from the labor, from the slavery. Sorry. is I will take you out from underneath the burden. We talked about this at Pesach without referring to this Pasuk that... Um, that Rav Hirsch talked about these four languages of redemption. The first one was freedom from the physical slavery, and the second one was freedom from being enslaved, being under the control of someone else. Even if you have a cushy job, if you're a slave, you're a slave. You're not free. And I will uh, bring salvation to you with an outstretched arm and with mighty judgments, and I will take you to me as, a, as my nation, I will be for you, your God, and you will know that I am Hashem, your God, who is taking you out from the burdens of Egypt. Okay. Now Rashi says here, therefore, what do you mean therefore? Pasuk says therefore, why? Hashem says, I made a covenant to the forefathers. I heard the groans of the Jewish people and I remembered my promise to the forefathers. Lachain, alpiosa hashavua. Therefore, meaning, as an outcome of that oath, the promise that I made to the forefathers, emor livnei Hashem. Because I promised the forefathers, therefore, you should tell the Jewish people, I am God. Because I promised the... What does that mean? So Rashi says... Because of that promise, you should tell them, Ani Hashem ha'ne'eman behaftachasi, who is faithful in my promises. And I think that in that Rashi, the fact that over here, Ani Hashem is, I am faithful in my promise, helps us to reconcile how in some places it's Ani Hashem, and that's to reward, and in some places it's Ani Hashem, and that's to punish. Hashem always keeps his promise. Okay. So, coming back from Shmos into the world of Bamidbar, which is weird because we're in Dvarim, but that's okay. 
there is, maybe let me bring a reverse. We had occasion to refer to this passage from reverse not so long ago. Hope I can find it quickly. Can't find it so fast? Maybe not so fast. Okay. So I don't remember exactly where the I don't remember exactly where it is. Somewhere in this area of the uh Brisbane Habasarin. But I don't remember exactly where. Alright. Somehow it's extremely important that we're closing Shema with an idea. Ani Hashem Elokechem, Asher Hotzeisi Eschem Me'eretz Mitzrayim, Lios Lachem Le'elokim. Oh, I found it. <laughs> I am Hashem, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am Hashem, your God. Hashem is faithful. He can see the tiniest distinctions, and he judges accordingly. But you can count on him. You can count on him also to lift you up on the wings of eagles. Meaning, once you, I think this is why Rashi brings these explanations after Hashem's declaration of faithfulness, of reliability. <clears throat> because once you are assured of that, then we can remind you you're wearing the four corners of your garment. You look at them and you think, Hashem said, And he did it. It's true the first ones who got the promise didn't see the fulfillment in their lifetime. But it happened. And I witnessed it. This generation, okay, who was there in the time of Parsha Shalach, we witnessed it. We saw that it was fulfilled. So for us... That's the proof that Hashem is Ne'eman. And there's a fifth Lashon of Geula that hasn't happened yet. It's separated from the other four. It's Vehevesi. I will bring you into the land. For the people in the desert in Parsha Shalach, it hadn't happened yet and didn't happen in their lifetimes because they all died in the desert. <coughs> And for us, it hasn't really happened yet. Vehevesi has never completely happened. The first four coming out of Egypt happened. We also remember them, and we remember Hashem is faithful to his word. Vehevesi hasn't happened yet. That's nisharim. I will raise you up on the wings of eagles. You remember the promise going forward, and you have faith in it because of the promise looking backward, which you've seen fulfilled. Okay, this is not so different from the ideas we talked about between Purim and Pesach, right? Looking, shining light of memory, using our memory in order to bring the light of a day that is no longer visible into the nighttime. That we, we have Zechira, remembering, right? We have the, that's the, what we do, that's the avoda of the nighttime? Okay. Now, first of all, I want to point out that when we start Shema, What's the opening message? Listen, Israel. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem Rachamim Elokeinu. Din. 
Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. It helps here if we realize it's not Sachar or Onish, it's faithful to keep his promise. That's the overall. That's the united one. When we've done something wrong, the way we see that come out is that we have a punishment, right? Particularly painful when it's a few days after Tisha B'Av. Mm-hmm. And we realize some of the scope, some of the scope of what that means. But when we've drawn close to him, there's also the nam on us of the drawing close and the reward for that. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Hashem is one. And he's Hashem and he's Elokeinu. If a person davens without a minion, he introduces Shema by saying, Kel Melech Ne'eman. God is faithful. And that is the message of the last verse of Shema. Hashem is Ne'eman. Ne'eman Lashalim. He is Ne'eman. Ne'eman always refers, I think we said this back, way back in Kel Melech Ne'eman. Kel Melech and Ne'eman referred to past, present, and future. One way of thinking about them was Kel in terms of creation of the world at the time of Adam Harishon and Melech at the time of Matan Torah. Those were moments in time where Hashem could, would be declared king forever, right? And Ne'eman, this is faithful, that's to the future. Ne'emonus is building your life and taking your actions around something that you know to be true, but you have not seen happen yet. That's, that is emuna. It's not ne'emonus, that's emuna. Okay? So that's why I wanted to just bring this passage from Rav Hirsch. On the Pasuk in, in Parshas Lech Lecha, Tesvav Pasuk Tes, the He'emin Hashem. Avraham trusted in God, or as Rav Hirsch mm-hmm. translates, he placed his whole confidence in God, and God reckoned that unto him as righteousness. Now, if emuna meant faith the way that it's used in English, like blindly believing in something with no basis for it, and it doesn't require action. I mean, the way, <laughs> the way the word faith is used in America, certainly coming out of the sort of, you know, Christian philosophy, faith is absolutely Trump's action. I mean, it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you have faith. Okay, that is not what emuna means. And certainly it would make no sense here if that's what emuna meant in Hebrew because Avraham was just lifted up over the stars and God spoke to him and said, your children will be like this. What do you mean he believed in God? And now he believes there's a God. Like, that doesn't make any sense, right? Of course he believed there was a God. That wasn't the issue. So what does it mean, v'hemin v'hashem? Hemin is not a mere submitting of our theoretical mind to the insight of another. He goes in first in saying that the idea of a religion whose cardinal point is believing in truths that are untenable to the intelligence you know, this is not a Jewish idea. Like, it's not what faith means, okay? And if we, if we look at what these Rashis told us, then one thing we know is that Amuna is exactly based on the fact that we have seen that God has fulfilled his promises to us. Okay, that's the opposite of an irrational faith. He says, Hamin is not just submitting our theoretical mind to the insight of another. It is placing our full confidence setting our whole theoretical and practical hold, our guidance, our strength, and our firmness in God. The, even the verbal concept, amen, 
When we hear a bracha and we say amen, it's mainly practical. The word amen can mean a sculptor, a shaper, a former, one who shapes living people. It can mean someone who adopts and trains, who trains somebody. It can mean to become an expert, so to train yourself, to shape yourself. Amen means not just simply firm, but making firm, giving a firm shape and definite form and direction to the indefinite material being of another. He'emin Bahashem, because He'emin is somewhat reflexive, is accordingly the home. <laughs> Let me get the toy. I don't think anybody else will. Ha'amin Bahashem is accordingly the whole formation of your life, culture, education, direction of your being and efforts in God. Leaving yourself up to him, giving yourself up as plastic material to be molded by God. In other words, you're shaping yourself according to God's will. That's emuna. That's what it means to trust God. To have faith in God means to trust that he is faithful. You can entrust yourself to his guidance and to his will because you feel safe there. Because you know you're safe there. So the fact that you haven't seen the end result yet doesn't trouble you at all. If you feel safe. Now, why do you feel safe? You feel safe because looking back, you see what he has done. And of course, the more righteous somebody is, as Rashi told us elsewhere, in Shemos, when people are tzaddikim, they don't require seeing very much in the past because they are so aware of God's words as truth, because they look past and it's enough to see the creation of the world, to see that God's word is reality. If God's word is reality, then the safest place you are is aligning yourself with his words. So to respond to a sentence with amen, to a bracha, does not only mean to declare that it is true, because like it's true whether you said so or not. <laughs> it is to give yourself up to the truth expressed in the sentence, to vow to allow yourself to be guided by it. Your amen means it's true. Amen. It's true. But it means you are also telling yourself, this is what is true. Because it is true, that's where I'm going to be guided. Amen doesn't refer to the contents of the pronouncement. Amen refers to the person who hears it and adopts it. That's a wild explanation of amen. <laughs> amen doesn't mean that we, because that's outrageous. Who am I? to verify <laughs> that God is true, like that what he said is true. Everything is according to God's word. You needed me? You needed Sarah Littman to come and tell you that's true? That's pathetic, okay? But I need Sarah Littman to say it's true. The fact that it guides me, that's very relevant. The fact that it tells anybody else it's true, it's not so much, right? Okay. Um, he says, even MS itself, 
which is, of course, where we're leading. You know, it's not in this Pasuk, but it is in Shema, Ani Hashem Elokeichem, MS, truth. This is truth. Okay? Even MS itself is not only truth in theory. It is truth in practice, indeed. It's truth that permeates everything. Okay. So we're starting to like get a direction over here. We st- open Shema with the declaration of Hashem's Ne'emonos. This is the, it's really the foundation. If we think of Ne'emonos and Emuna as the mm-hmm. flip sides of one coin. Mm-hmm. Ne'emonos is faithfulness, meaning that God is always there. He's always true. His word is always true. He can always be trusted in. Then Emuna is our reaction to that. Emuna is how we behave in response to God's ne'emanus. Yeah, it makes us ne'eman, as it said with Moshe. Thank you so much. Okay. They reflect each other. And Yitzias Mitzrayim. Why does Yitzias Mitzrayim have to be mentioned here? This is now my suggestion, but I think it is a fair representation of what we see here. Yitzias Mitzrayim is the experience that bonds it together. Yitzias Mitzrayim is the time when we were able to see, number one, Hashem's Ne'emonos, that he was in fact faithful to his promises to our forefathers in great and complete detail. He said we'll go out with great wealth, and he meant the real wealth of Torah, but he still sent us out with a lot of money anyway, so that every aspect of his word was fulfilled no matter how you understood it. And it also showed us that in each of God's interactions with the Egyptians and with us, it was the same. The Ne'emanus was complete, both to punish and to reward. His promises to the forefathers to reward them. And the way that that was accomplished was not on the backs of the Egyptians. It was a perfect negative reward to the Egyptians. Their punishments were only exactly equal or exactly in scale to their misdeeds and their wickedness, right? That was ultimately at the sea, when we see each one dying at the speed and suffering that was exactly appropriate to the, the suffering they had caused to others. So the, the act of Yitzhi, the experience of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim, it's upon this that we build Emuna and Ne'emanos forever. Because we have this experience where we see the past Ne'emanos fulfilled, and we see the reward and punishment fulfilled. Both types of Ne'emanos all come together into one Echad. The Rachamim and the Din come together as Echad, and it is perfect and complete. I think there's also a way we can look at Kriyashma as the expression of this Ne'emanos, Emuna. Where the first paragraph, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, Hashem Elokecha, that's a proclamation that Hashem is Ne'eman. He is Keol Melech Ne'eman. I don't think this is such a stretch, <laughs> right? Hashem is the king who is Ne'eman. That's how, we, that's how we declare him as king. 
And that from there comes, of course, that's the kind of emuna you get from recognizing that. It, you, your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole effort, everything can be thrown into following God's word. That's fine. That's great. That's where you feel safe and happy and loved. And in Vahaya Im Shamoa, it's a description. We're now saying, here's how it looks. When you do mitzvos, right? And, and in fact, the avoda of the first paragraph of Shema is Kabbalah's Malchus Shemaim, accepting Hashem as Melech. Hashem is our Melech, but we are accepting him as Melech. This is what Rashi just reinforced again all the way at the end of Shema. I'm your king anyway, whether you want me or not. But I took you out of Mitzrayim so you'd want me. So you would accept me. Okay? So in Vahayim Shemoah, the Avoda is Kabbalah's mitzvos. And what you're supposed to think about is Haranonish. There's such a thing. It's, it's real. You can trust it. You can base your life on that. So that's the description of what we proclaimed in the first paragraph, playing out. And the third one, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, that's how it looks in action. That's, that's what it feels like when you experience And that's also what it looks like when you're aware of it. When you went through it in Vahayim Shamoa and you're aware of it, then you look at the tzitzis and you remember Hashem and you're trying very hard to avoid doing the wrong thing and you're trying very hard to do the right thing. And you're trying to figure out how to not let it happen again, whether you're being pushed into it or not, out of your free will. Because Kel Melech Naaman. And that's Ani Hashem Elkechem. I am Hashem your God. Naaman Lashalim Sachar. If you're with a minion, you don't have to say Kel Melech Naaman. You just jump right into Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu Hashem Echad. It's possible that that's because the fact that you're together with the, with the large group means you don't have to add those words. I mean, the way it plays out in the words is that the shaliach tzibor then repeats, Hashem elokechem emes, which is, now that we saw Rav Hirsch, a very similar statement to Kel Melech Naaman. One is public, that's on the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim side. One is private, that's on the personal between you and God side, Kel Melech Naaman. But you see how in many ways they're expressing the same thing. And in the public realm, the way that's expressed is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, which is the perfect communal event because everyone experienced it together. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not, it's, it's quite late now, especially because we started with some of the other things. But I'll just remind you of the Ramban at the end of Parsha's bow, which we have read before and which Rabbi After also, I know, referred to one Shabbos possibly at around Parsha's bow, I don't remember. Okay, which is this Ramban who says, and now I'm going to tell you a general principle in the reasoning behind many, many mitzvos, because there were all different kinds of avodazara, and beginning in the days of Enosh, he's talking about the philosophies, heretical philosophies. Starting in the days of Enosh, there began to be these, these confused ideas, not untrue ideas entering people's minds in terms of emuna, trusting in God. Some people denied be'ikar. They denied the existence of God at all and said the world has lasted forever, so they're denying Hashem at all. There were others who denied, in that they said, well, no, there was a God who created the world, but they deny that he knows really what goes on to it with the world. Um, you know, maybe that he created it, but it was accidental. He's not really aware. He's not able to know what's going on. Some 
acknowledged that God exists and acknowledged that he knows what's going on in the world, but they deny that he's paying attention to it. So they say that people are just like little guppies, that Hashem is not paying attention really what happens to them, and therefore there's no schar or onesh. He doesn't care what we do, so there's no such thing as reward and punishment. They say God has abandoned the world. He's not really interested in what goes on. When God desires, and he makes for a community or an individual, a wonder and changes the way the world works, he changes nature, it becomes clear that all of those previous things are wrong. Because the miracle itself indicates that there is a God who has charge of this world, and he knows what's going on, and he's supervising it. And if he announces it first to a Navi, and the Navi tells you this is what's going to happen, and then it does happen, then furthermore it tells you something beyond those, which is that God speaks to people and reveals himself to us through the Torah. He says, and therefore, this whole idea that Hashem will do these miracles and you will know that he is God and he hasn't abandoned the land. This is the ultimate faith in Hashem. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And this was the biggest expression of this were the miracles of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And therefore he says that so many of the mitzvahs that we do are some kind of zecher liitzias mitzrayim, a to remind us of what happened in Egypt. And not only, even the ones that aren't, many of them are, the, the miracles of Egypt are in every generation a testimony against these other ideas that are not true and that this is also the reason why, for example, we build shuls and come together in groups in order to praise God. So that's, that's just what I wanted to say, was that this idea, he seems to group it together. The idea of coming together to sing God's praise as testimony mm -hmm. that he is God and he created the world and there is Sahar and Onesh. That is, the, according to the Ramban, that's the reason for gathering together in shuls and gathering together to pray and sing out loud Hashem's praises. And so this is the end of Shema. It's the expression of Emunah. We're not finished learning Shema. <laughs> we didn't get to the word Emes, which is like a hidden, right? Okay. And I think this also explains those two final statements of Rashi, which are, at first, it's confusing why they're here. The statements of Rashi on Kanfei Vigdehem, about the corners of your garments, and Psil Techeles, the blue strand, why are they here at all? They, should, they belong a few verses before. Okay? But perhaps we can say that that's why. Because on the wings of your garments, this is the reminder that God said four different languages I'll take you out of Egypt. And you see the four different corners that remind you of the four. Whenever you hear four, you're going to think of that. And what about the strand of blue? The strand of blue reminds you that God sees down to the tiniest things. Mm -hmm. And he knows how to identify them, whether people ourselves are able to identify them or not. And through this, we see his faithfulness. Now, there's one last point that I don't, I don't want to miss here. Um, By the way, the example that he gives, Hashem, that Hashem says, I could see between the droplet that's a bechor and not. That droplet is considered, number one, 
extremely tiny and therefore insignificant. It's interesting because it only becomes significant if it develops. <laughs> but until it does, it's insignificant. It's also considered yucky. It's a little bit disgusting, right? Pirkeavos, where did you come from? From a putrid drop, right? It's like not so nice. There's nothing that is too low or that grosses God out. He is paying attention to everything in the world and tells the difference between them. But the last point I want to make, I'm sorry, it's so late. I have this like feeling like, okay, we really have to start winding up Shema, is what Rashi said. There are eight strings on the tzitzis that remind us of the eight days. They, they represent the eight days between leaving Mitzrayim and singing Shira on the sea. And that connects to, the, and, and the blue string which reminds us of the devastation of the Bechors and is the color of the sky as it approaches evening. What was that about? So your first clue is, what do you mean eight days from leaving Egypt until we crossed the sea and sang? We left Egypt as the first day of Pesach and Shkira Sayam is the seventh day of Pesach. It's seven days. It isn't eight days. <laughs> Rashi himself says elsewhere it's seven days. What's the eight days? Okay, so the Maharal explains, what's the eight days? It's only eight days if you're counting from Chatzos, from midday of Erev Pesach. What happened midday of Erev Pesach? We slaughtered the Paschal lamb. We slaughtered the first Karban Pesach. And the Egyptians couldn't do a thing about it. That's actually the place where Rav Hirsch said, that's where we became free of them, even though we hadn't left. We were still in Egypt. We hadn't left Egypt, but we were free. Why were we free? We were free because the Egyptians could do nothing because God can do everything. I am your God. I have all the power. So yes, you have to obey me, but nobody else can touch you. That happened midday the day before. And the Maharal says, you know what the proof of that is? He says, even though the, mit the mitzvah of eating matzah is only on Pesach, but the mitzvah to not eat hummus starts at midday the day before. There's a freedom that came already beforehand. He gives another proof, I think. I don't remember. Okay. He says, this is the coming out from their control, even though we hadn't left their land yet. Now, this is very interesting because Rashi's saying that the eight strands of the tzitzis remind us of eight days from when we left Egypt to when we sang at the sea. In other words, there's eight days. There's an eight, not a seven. If you're talking about seven days, that would be a process of revelation of God completely. You get to Shira Sayyam at Zekeli Vehu. He's revealed. If you're talking about eight days, then your starting point is that you're still in Egypt. You became free because of your relationship with God, but you didn't actually leave. It's the color of the sky, but it's approaching nighttime. It's awfully dark. It's the color. It's very it's interesting. Nighttime just before. It's going into the evening already. And so on the one hand, you've just become free, but on the other hand, it's daylight, but you could barely call it daylight. And the action that happens over there is not that we leave Egypt. 
the action that happens is we behave as if we're free of Egypt. We, sh- we shech the korban Pesach. Why? Because we have emunah. Because we know nothing can happen to us. We're safe with God. Nobody else can do anything to us. And therefore, we behave accordingly. That's an aspect of eightness. That's supernatural, right? That's where we come. The eighth day is the bris milah, where we come and we take an action that gives a perfection to what was created. That's Hanukkah, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is the definition of the Jewish people. Rav Hirsch said that elsewhere, right? About tzitzis. Mm-hmm. Eight is the defining aspect. Seven is universal and natural. Eight is supernatural and refers to the role of the Jewish people in doing mitzvos. This is exactly the message. Ani Hashem Elokeichem, which I'm not going to go into the details of the Mephorshim. Why was there two Ani Hashem Elokeichems? One is when I'm visible to you, saving you out of Egypt, and one is when you can't see me and I'm hidden and you're in Gullus. Either way, even when it's hidden, when we are behaving as if it's all revealed because we know it's there. There's ne'emanus. God is faithful. He will keep his word. That is actually the beginning of the redemption. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the beginning. That's the beginning of the redemption. Mm-hmm. Is when we can do that. So that is a, that's a rather astonishing thing. Okay, we will stop here. <laughs> and then Reza Hashem will continue next week. Um... A little bit more on Ani Hashem Elokechem. And maybe we'll even start on MS. It's not, we're not quite finished yet, I don't think. <laughs> Fortunately, the summer is not over. 